You are listening to another week in the world of the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings, with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man at SASTA, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. And with every week that passes by, we're getting closer to SASTA Annual 2018, the greatest SAS event on Earth, and perfectly coinciding to make that perfect Christmas present for the one you love. Yes, imagine their face on Christmas morning to see not only the present of SASTA Annual, but bought using the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, meaning an exclusive invite to a mojito event with me, and of course, 10% off the ticket price. Is that not the present to end all Christmas presents? And to get that, simply enter the promo code Drinks with Harry when you purchase your tickets. Those three words, Drinks with Harry, and I cannot wait to see you there. But to the episode today, and what a phenomenal guest we have in store, Des Trainer, co-founder, chief strategy officer, and VP of marketing at Intercom, one of the world's hottest SaaS startups that simply put, makes communicating with customers easy and efficient, and they've raised over $115 million in funding from some of the world's leading investors, including the likes of Social Capital, Index Ventures, Bessemer Venture Partners, and then titans of tech, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and the Collison Brothers at Stripe. And prior to Intercom, Des previously co-founded Exceptional, now a part of Rackspace, and was a UX designer for web applications. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Nicholas Desain at Algolia for the intro to Des today, without which this episode would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today, today's episode is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform. Datadog brings you visibility into every part of your infrastructure, plus APM for monitoring your application's performance, dashboarding, collaboration tools and alerts let you develop your workflow for observability and incident response, and Datadog integrates seamlessly with all your apps and systems, from Amazon Web Services to Docker to VMware, so you can get full stack visibility in minutes. Simply go to datadog.com forward slash SASTA to learn more, and check this out. If you start a free trial, we'll send you a free t-shirt. And thanks to my friends at WePay, I've got another very cool SaaS company for you. Let me introduce you to Team Sideline, the complete sports league management solution, and the mobile-first platform offers a ton of features users love, from registrations to roster building to facility reservations. Said one user, nobody has the level of service and features available for less than twice the price. Simply learn more at teamsideline.com. And to learn how you can better cover your bases with integrated payments, like Team Sideline did, simply visit wepay.com forward slash SASTA. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Saster. However, that's quite enough of my terrible British tones, and so I'm now thrilled to hand over to another Brit, Des Trainer, co-founder at Intercom. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Des, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Des. Thank you for the opportunity, Harry. I really enjoy the podcast, so it's great to be on it. Not at all. It's a welcome, welcome introduction having an Irish accent on the show. So thank you for that. But I'd love to kick off today with a little on you and how you made your way into what I always call the wonderful world of SaaS. Yes, and wonderful it is. Who would have thought when I was growing up that I would have obsessed over a recurring revenue business model, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was growing up dreaming of it, so I mean, I beat you to that one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, so I guess my background, I mean, it's hard to know how far back to go, but I guess the relevant pieces are I studied computer science and software engineering, and I graduated and then pursued a PhD in trying to understand how students could learn how to become better software engineers, specifically focusing on education. And it was during that time I became a lecturer which kind of had me my first touch of public speaking and then I got really bored with academia and I don't mean that to sound like dismissive I just mean it was it was a fault of mine I kind of lost motivation I found myself chasing
facing something I didn't want. So I started a job as a consultant doing a sort of web usability consulting and user experience design type work. And then I got bored of that after a year. I met Owen McCabe, who's the CEO of Intercom. We started a consultancy together called Contrast. We had a side product called Exceptional. We were quite inspired by the 37 Signals at the time. Now it's known as Basecamp. Mm-hmm. Sort of style of like run a popular consultancy and also build your own thing on the side. We had our own thing on the side. It was called Exceptional. It was a Ruby on Rails error tracking app. And ultimately, one of the frustrations we had with that product was we had thousands of people using our product all the time and we had no easy way to talk to them. We had lots of users and we had no relationship with them. It felt very impersonal. We were a few folks in this north side of Dublin City and we had very few customers in the north side of Dublin City and yet we had thousands of customers all over the world and we would have loved a way to sort of have a personal relationship with them. So we started building bits and pieces of what that would look like and ultimately sold Exceptional. It became a part of Rackspace and then we started this new thing which we called Intercom and today Intercom is like I guess six and a half years old. We have like 20,000 paying customers. We have like you know multiple offices, 400 people, blah 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 and it's been quite a journey since then and that's how I ended up in what you would describe as the world of SaaS. And kind of having that really personal relationship with people allows you to build the brand from the grassroots and brand is something you said before is most overlooked element in new software companies. So let's start with some meaning. Brand is loosely thrown around today. What really is brand to you in the early days, do you think? In the early days, I think no matter what the stage, brand is a like memorable promise of value and maybe experience. And I think all of those aspects matter. I mean, memorable means that you're kind of aggregating value over time as you reinforce this brand. It actually just gets more powerful and bigger and better. The promise is the kind of the whole purpose of a brand. It's basically saying when you see the Apple logo you will know what it stands for so if I say to you Apple television or Apple car you can kind of infer aspects of the sort of promise that's being made then in terms of the value like that's the value is the level of utility you get and it compares it to its cost so you have like luxury brands or you have low cost brands you have budget brands etc and then experiences means like what will it feel like to be a user of this product what will it feel like to interact with this business do you expect good support do you expect good service do you expect to be regarded well do you expect a direct connection with the business or do you will you be dealt with through a reseller so for me like it's all of those things it's the memorable promise and it's the value and the experience that you're that you're sort of offering and i think that's the piece like it's very very easy to accidentally create a brand you don't get to sort of decide when it happens it happens from the moment you put your product live and i think people don't really pay enough attention to it because of that can i ask is there and this is completely off schedule is there a problem with brand being too aligned to one product so an example would be say rovio with angry birds the brand is angry birds is there a problem with such alignment with one product, meaning kind of inability to produce multiple lines of product and kind of diversifying that product strategy. Yeah, there is. So like Atlassian are a great example of this, right? Atlassian were not known as a company for a long time, yet everyone knew Jira. And Jira was actually a bigger brand than Atlassian. Some would argue it still is. You're probably familiar with the 3M Corporation, Milson Mining Corporation, where their most famous product being the Post-it note, right? And Post-it is undeniably a bigger brand in a sense than, uh, than the actual parent brand. Does this concept called brand architecture where you basically decide like are you a branded house i.e. everything your company produces does it get preceded with your endorser brand so google maps google mail google voice google whatever or are you sort of like going to create specifically different entirely different brands that actually aren't in any way like there's nothing that connects them together you know in any sense however there is some sort of like procter and gamble like company lurking in the background that you hope eventually people might join the dots on or not i think like you know there's a whole school of thought on on brand architecture and Rovio's problem specifically was that like a lot of Hollywood has this problem too where like people think about movies before they think about you know no one's like oh I can't wait to go see a touchstone picture you know 
know, that's not <laughs> people go to the movies, right? In essence, when you hear something that's like a 21st century Fox movie, you don't actually know what to think about that. You're kind of like, well, I hope it's a good one. So like, I think you need to work out what your brand stands for. And then if you're going to go into like incidents of it and try to brand everything that you do, you need to then work out what the values that your sort of parent brand holds. Google is synonymous with certain things. Apple is synonymous with certain things. And then you need to work out what the sub-brand is. So Apple maybe has a small risk of this in that like iPhone is clearly like the smash hit runaway product of the company. But they do a really good job reinforcing Apple and not becoming the iPhone company, even though iPhone by itself would be like, I think, a Fortune 20 or Fortune 50 company. So I think, yeah, you have to pay attention if you have a sort of family of products or if you want to have a family of products, you have to pay attention to what part is the company and what part is that specific product. Because I know Atlassian, in order to say IPO and stuff like that, they had to really, really go back to basics on making sure everyone knows that, hey, Jira is just one thing we do. We also have a source control product and now we own like Trello and all that sort of stuff. It's complex, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. We spoke about many other companies there. Let's apply it to you and ground level with you and Intercom. Which strategy did you choose? The overarching brand and then kind of multiple individual products with their own brands? Or did you choose the kind of branded Gmail style? And what was the framework and thinking behind that? So it's interesting to think about Intercom and this thing because I, obviously I know a lot more now than I did then. So it's kind of like I don't want to try to reverse engineer a sort of wise strategy to try and mislead your listeners. What I would say is to most of the folks who are starting out or in the early days, it's very, very hard to tell the difference between the product, the company, the sort of brand and the actual, the founder itself, right? Or the founders. They all basically say and stand for roughly the same thing. The piece you have to think about early on is, am I producing a company that produces multiple products or producing one product? At the very start, Intercom was like a monolithic piece of software that let you see and talk to your users. That's what we built basically. And we called it Intercom. The company was Intercom and that was it. And it was only actually as we realized that we were being used, we had a product that was being used by specifically different groups of people for very different tasks. But the blurriness of the monolith, if you like, was causing a problem. Where like, as an example, a marketer really wanted to use Intercom to say increase customer engagement. But we'd often hear things like, but you know, then I have to talk to my support team to get all of them to adopt your support product. And we're like, no, 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 you don't have to do that. But I think we had created this sort of idea that to use Intercom, one must use all of Intercom. So one of the ways we tackled against that was obviously we split the product up, but we also then created these like sort of sub products, which were in in essence like uh, Intercom Respond, Intercom Engage, Intercom Educate, which actually let you do specific things. And in doing so, we managed to make it clearer and it actually did help increase demand. We made it clearer that like, hey, there's actually a lot going on here and you can pick and choose your battles or you can use the entire Intercom platform with all of its products if you wish. And I think I wouldn't say that we nailed it because when we started out, it wasn't clear what we'd have to do as we as we came to certain points along the journey. Can I ask, we mentioned that multiple different products, you know, in startups, resources are often constrained. When's the right time, do you think, to launch and start thinking about a second product and really deploying those resources and time to that second product? Is there inflection points? That's a really hard question, but I, I can sort of say how I think about it because it's hard to like, you know, it's not like, oh, the answer is when you hit 4.6 million error, which is what Jason would say or something. <laughs> so I guess like the way I think about it is you build a product and then the company usually comes second, you know, obsessed with a certain problem. Over time, you might learn that the problem that you're trying to solve is actually multiple problems or when it's solved by larger companies, it's solved by broken into smaller pieces and each one of those pieces is solved by a different team. And in those cases, you might say it's hard to play at either like both ends of the market or it's hard to sell to product marketing support and sales with the exact same thing. We need to sort of deliver features that are specific to each of their use cases. In those cases, you'll obviously, you'll start to see tension trying to bundle it all into one place, right? And you can sort of see, I don't want to 
name names of people who've got this wrong because it's just kind of harsh. Uh, you know, when you see a product that's got like three too many tabs and you start you start to think, oh, they've put extra stuff in here that doesn't really resonate. So imagine like a project management product that also has a tab for like source control. You're like, okay, well, that's definitely not used by all of the people. So like from a product point of view, I'd look at this from like what percentage of your customers are using all of your product and what percentage are just using bespoke pieces. And, you know, for each feature in your product, is there a specific segment of your user base that only uses it? And in those cases, I think you should consider splitting up your product or like or like venturing into further product spaces. If you don't, there's a risk that you try to build the mother of all products in a sense and you end up with kind of a one size fits none solution. So I think that's when like splitting makes sense. Unfortunately, what I see a lot of startups do is like they launch one product. It doesn't really like light up the scoreboard. So they sort of say, we're going to launch a second product. But actually, I think that's okay if you're going to dress it up as a pivot and sort of say, hey, it's okay to fail or whatever. That's fine. But I, I think like you should be careful about only maintaining profitable and successful product lines and don't use branching out into a second product as an excuse to kind of bury failure, if you know what I mean. If you have something that didn't work, you should kill it and move on to the next thing. You spoke about kind of, you said the word exactly there, bespoke. I'd love to discuss something, having actually stalked you for the past 48 hours, I watched your web summit talk many times, and you said there's an inverse correlation between quality and market size. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and does that go contra the traditional Peter Thiel thesis of going in at a very, very niche market and expanding from there? It doesn't. It actually probably supports Peter's thesis. Uh, I guess what I would say is that um, the way I explain this internally occasionally is I'd sort of say, imagine like, you know, the Des Trainer email client, like literally designed by hand for me. And I love that product and it has an addressable market of one and it is literally perfect for exactly how I use email. Now we want to go and support Harry Stebbings as well. So we're going to try and make version 1.1 be the Des Trainer plus Harry Stebbings email client. Now you have a one feature request that I don't give a shit about and I have one way I work that you don't like. So the very second, we've now stepped into a world where we have one optional feature and now one thing that needs to be a setting because I send an archive and you don't use archive at all, right? So now if we extrapolate along the, these lines and we try to address all possible markets, we end up building this product that becomes basically a complex jumble of preferences and settings and plugins and modules and extensions to try and address all possible use cases, which means almost by definition, it's not simple and it's not like uniquely designed and it doesn't feel like it's just for me. So that's kind of when I sort of say there's an inverse correlation. I, I guess what I mean is like to address a larger market, inevitably, you know, sometimes it is just a marketing challenge. And an example might be say like internationalization or localization or something like that, where, you know, you just need to make it available under more circumstances. But more often than not, it means adding extra features that the people who are happily currently paying for your product don't actually want or care about. And you have to like make and hold your decisions and opinions about the product space pretty intelligently here. So a simple example might be like, oh, we're going to do an email client that never shows you, like never lets you, uh, let's say archive, right? Well, what happens is that decision starts to look pretty expensive over time because it's costing you customers. Let's say, say you're building a project management tool and you say, we don't believe in date. Well, that might sound cool and it might get you beautiful screenshots early on and everyone will remark about how beautiful, how simple it is. And that might be perfect for the sort of low end of the market or the people who desire a super simple project management tool. And if that's your entire market and you're happy with that and you think you can profitably run a business in the market, then fantastic. However, if you got your initial buzz for being super simple, but now you realize you need a lot more customers and all these customers are saying, hey, we really need dates, then you have to sort of ask yourself, how valuable is this dogma that says we shouldn't support dates in our product? And this is literally where you run into a tension of like addressable market versus product vision. And you start to realize that like not all 
dogmatic design decisions are actually earning their keep per se. So if you want to expand your market size, you have to open yourself to the idea that there will be features in your product that not everyone loves. And you need to work out a sort of a design architecture that lets you optionally include them without like sort of sacrificing the kind of core value proposition you have. And I do think there's a tension there. And the mantra of like simple, 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 Steve Jobs said simple to do everything simple. It, it can actually start to backfire a little bit where people end up mistaking what like what might have been a sort of a core design belief with practical business advice. And the best founders, they're, they're equally skilled in like business experience design or product design and then technology as well. And they kind of know what's hard, what's necessary, what they can sell, what looks good, what's easy to build, etc. And I think understanding that tension is just really important. Speaking of those design preferences, a constant dilemma for me is to what extent should customers be involved in the product roadmap and, and kind of customizing the next iteration of the product? What are your thoughts on that, whether the customer's always right, as the mantra suggests, and how involved they should really be? There's a few different things going on here. So I think like one thing I'd say is the customer is always correct in their own mind and in their experience of your product. Uh, however, customers don't speak in terms of like abstract problems. They speak only in terms of solutions that they can imagine will solve their problem, if you know what I mean. So customers rarely say like, I feel this overwhelming challenge whenever I try to add more people to the product where I feel anxiety and paranoia because I don't trust all my colleagues. That's not what customers say. What they say is I need permissions and or I need security settings or something like that. And I'm saying that like that's a, a fair example of customers will, will only tell you what the things that they think you should add to your product. Whereas what you need to hear from them is what is the problem that's occurring that's causing you to make this statement. And that's the first piece I'd say before we get into exact roadmaps, but is that you have to understand what you hear from a customer is their expression of what they think will solve their specific problem. So to give you a very simple example, I would love it if when people are slacking me and I'm in a meeting, I would love a Google Calendar integration that would automatically reply to say, Des is in a meeting, he will get back to you at 6 p.m. or something like that, right? That would be valuable for me. Now, if Slack took that and built that, what would happen is they'd have to build probably 15 to 20 different things. If they build my version of the solution, that means they have a Google Calendar integration because that's what Des wants. Harry might say, I want an away mode. And Harry might turn himself away when he's in meetings. And somebody else might say, hey, can you detect if I'm not replying to people and just automatically set me to the away mode that Harry designed? And you end up basically building like seven or eight different, very pointed, specific solutions to what's actually a general problem, which is let people know when I'm not available. So I think it's really dangerous to take customer requests for features as gospel and say, that's the thing we need to build. You need to go back to the sort of core problem and then work from there forward and sort of say, now, here's the problem space. What do we think is the best universal solution to this that will address everyone's problems? Now, onto the roadmap piece, like, and, and what percentage weight you give to the voice of the customer, that's really like, it's a company strategy decision. I think early on, you're building everything off your own intuition and, and you should be because that's why you started a company to put your art out into the world and leave it there to be experienced by others to see like if they enjoy it. As you get customers, you have to listen to them. As you hire the rest of your team, you have to listen to them too. As you have a sales team who can't close deals because you're missing certain features, you should probably listen to them. As your, say, infrastructure team are telling you, hey, we need to actually rework this whole backend to make it more scalable, you need to listen to them too. What you end up with is, I think today we recognize seven valid inputs into our roadmap. And it's really important to have that sort of discussion because then you can sort of say, okay, well, what are we focusing on this quarter? Are we focusing on stability, security, and an uptime? Or are we focusing on new feature development as referred by customers? Or are we focusing on enabling the sales team to close? Or are we focusing on iterating recent product? Like they're the sort of meteor discussions to have. And I think, you know, yes, customers are super important, but they're just one of the many inputs that will go into your roadmap. And I 
think if you pay it too much attention, you will become a sort of bespoke consulting firm who just builds what customers ask for, and your product will become the sort of sum of all ideas from all customers ever, which is you know a really bad place to end up. Speaking of the customers themselves, today, you mentioned twenty thousand at the beginning, incredible amount. But I'd love to ask about selling both to SMB and to enterprise, which you do very successfully with Intercom. But we had Paul Albright on the show recently, and he said that it's much harder to go from enterprise down with regards to kind of scaling down because the changes are on the customer side. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, where you started with Intercom and how you think about the comparison between selling to enterprise versus SMB. So obviously, as you said, like we have larger customers. We have people like, you know, Microsoft are a customer, uh, Spotify are a customer. Like we actually have like pretty large customers. And obviously we also have like every new YC startup you can name uses Intercom <laughs> as well, right? So we have the full spectrum here. And I guess we've been talking about this a lot internally and like the, the, there's some really obvious changes that you sort of pick up. One of them, and probably the most core one from a product point of view, is that small companies will change how they work to use your tools. Big companies will want to change your tools to adapt to how they work. And that sort of willingness, like uh, smaller companies will look to what your the behavior your tool prescribes and follow it. And bigger companies, their first instinct is to say, how can we make this work the way we work? And that's an obvious difference, which again brings you into that world of preferences and settings and stuff like that. In terms of uh, go-to-market, it's also interesting. Like Small companies are shopping to solve a problem, usually for the first time. They're looking for like their first help desk or their first real help desk, or they have made their first stop at addressing churn or something like that. Whereas big companies have usually got a solution in place for all of their obvious problems. So when they're talking to you, it's more of an optimization challenge. It's more of, hey, we really want to address this thing. We've already had like two or three. We, we've got, you know, for us, it's like we've got Marketo in the mix and we've got Infusionsoft and we've got like exact target. And we still think there's a place for you, but here's the, here's the use case we think you could actually, you, you could do better on, right? Whereas smaller companies are just like, oh my God, you can, you can help us market. Brilliant. And there's, there's just a, a difference in attitude there. And the way that often translates is that like small companies will buy a soft sell. We can say to them things like, your users will love you. Your product design will improve and your staff will be a lot happier for using this product. And they're like, fucking A, that sounds great, right? Whereas a big company wants hard sales. They want to hear like sales will increase, churn will decrease, efficiency will increase. In general, like I had someone say to me, hey, look, you know, I'm an enterprise buyer, Des. I have two numbers I care about, the amount of money I make and the amount of money I spend. You need to tell me which of these numbers you're going to affect and in which direction. And that's literally it. And you said both going up. Spend <laughs> <laughs> more and you'll make more. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then the other more obvious things kind of connected to that is like in a small company, the buyer is the user and in a big company, the buyer is definitely not the user. Small companies, as a result, can like they'll buy your software or whatever way you're selling it. Whereas big companies will tell you, we've added intercom to our procurement process and all our vendors follow this and it takes between 60 and 90 days to rationalize. And we expect you to present on, you know, there's all of this usual dynamic. And honestly, like there's a very rational reason for it. I've noticed as intercoms become a larger company itself, we've had to like realize, oh, well, one does not simply go and buy an AV solution. We actually should talk to a few people and, and like look to getting a solution for a few years. So, I mean, it's, it's all natural gravity of growing as a company, but I, I do think um, it's quite easy for small companies who are tiptoeing up market to kind of be caught blindsided by a lot of this. And maybe their, their product isn't ready, or maybe it's that their like sales team isn't ready, or often it's that their marketing isn't ready. Like maybe they, maybe they don't have like good example customers. Maybe they, instead they're focusing on like cool customers or, you know, niche customers or whatever. So I think that there's a lot you learn as you move through the gears there. And I think it's, you know, the implications are full funnel from like acquisition strategies right down to like customer support. You said that about buying a solution for the next few years. I'm intrigued from both perspective now as a buyer and then also as the seller. Have buying cycles ever been a problem? Maybe particularly selling to enterprise where the buying cycles are two to three years and intersecting with those buying cycles with your solution. Has that ever been a problem? And how do you think 
about that? The way in which it's a problem, I, mean, I guess we kind of, we're both helped and hindered by the concept. We sell, as you know, like we sell software to the customer support side of the house and we sell software to the marketing side of the house. And there's one interesting sort of observation we've made, which is that in general, customer support software is zero sum. People will not use multiple different customer support solutions uh, together. There's like the staff training, there's onboarding, there is a whole customer account history that needs to be migrated. And as a result, people are happy to commit to something like an intercom or like a Zendesk or whatever for like for a long period of time. On the other side, marketing tools are stack them high and if they're doing their job, they can stick around. So as long as you can show one sort of piece of ROI and for us, that might be like, hey, we're going to help you increase trial to paid or we're going to help you start more conversations on your website with your visitors or whatever like the ROI that, that they're buying is. Once you can do that job, it's not zero sum. Like they can use you and they can also use six other tools that also touch different parts of the marketing. Now, the reason that ties to buying cycles is that usually people are good to go on the marketing side. They have a burning need. And if, if you can really deliver the percentage improvements you're offering, then they'll push to get you in as quickly as possible. And it's not necessarily like, oh, we have to buy you or somebody else. However, on customer support, it's very much like it's like in March, we are going to be reviewing what we use to talk to our customers. Please let us know uh, the current state. And if you're SOC 2 compliant and blah, 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 if you have all these various features, that's how it works. So as I said, it's a help and a hindrance. And uh, we've seen both sides of it. I'd love though to finish today, Des, on a quick fire. So it's Des's 60 seconds faster made especially for you. How does that sound? Wonderful. I love it. So when I say success, Des, who's the first person that comes to your mind and why? I, you know, on the sports side of things, I think like Lionel Messi, I'm a big soccer fan. And I think of like somebody who's literally, truly lived out every single piece of potential. I think Lionel Messi is probably one of the best athletes we'll ever see in our lifetime. Who do you support, Des? I support Manchester United, but first and foremost, Ireland. Great interview, Des. It was it was great chatting. Speak soon. <laughs> I'm a Chelsea fan. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So we're just going to have a really awkward final few questions now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> where do most startups go wrong with their branding? You've seen a ton of startups. You see them continuously. Where do they most go wrong with their branding in your perspective? I think they go overly literal on what it is their product does. So you'll see like an issue tracking tool called Issue Tracker or something like that. They don't try to paint a vision or, or a bigger story that they fit in. They're just very specific to one piece of utility and then they struggle to expand. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? People management is without doubt the most important skill that one needs if you're a startup is to succeed. Follow on question from that. How do you divide your time? If you were to do kind of a table broken down with percentages, what does your time spent look like? I would say maybe 40% is on my direct reports and the projects that they're working on. Maybe 30% is working with the other execs in Intercom on sort of cross-functional projects. 15% is on things like this, content creation, giving presentations, sort of the public-facing side of Intercom. Mm -hmm. And then I try to keep 15% free because there are always like random important projects that we're trying to kick off. So right now we're kicking off hiring in our London office and that's a whole new thing that I need to sort of take on and work on. So I always try to keep a certain amount of free bandwidth so that when a company problem bubbles up and flares up that I can actually jump on it. So that's roughly how I'd say I spend my time. Love it. And I want to finish then. Rainy day in San Francisco. What do you read? What's the favorite SaaS reading material for you? I don't necessarily read a lot of like SaaS blogs, but the people who get on my radar, I would say Ben Thompson from Strategery, Benedict Evans, a little bit of Tom Tungas. And then obviously I, I do, like, I mean, because I contribute so little these days, I do actually read our own blog to see what's going on and what's changing there. And then at a more abstract level, I, I like reading older classic business books that are still highly rated. 
created. So as an example, like going back to brand, say David Acker has a great book on like brand relevance. And I read those things because I think like if it hasn't become irrelevant over like 30 or 40 years and it's still getting five star reviews, that's a, it's a pretty high mark for a book to pass versus something that was popular this year. But like if you take some like Sapiens, which I've read and I think is awesome, I know that it's very much flavor de jour uh, and it'll fizzle and people have forgotten in two or three years. I do wonder how much of the stuff we're reading today will be relevant in like 2040 or whatever. So I, I often find it valuable to go back a bit and look at some of the older classics. Well, Des, I know that this interview will still be referenced in 2040 due to your brilliance, but thank you so much for joining me today and I've so enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me, Harry. As always, so much fun chatting to Des and incredible to see the journey that Des and Owen have been on with Intercom over the past few years. Very exciting times ahead there. And if you'd like to see more from Des, you can find him on Twitter at Des Trainer. Likewise, you can see more from us behind the scenes at Sasta and the 20 Minute VC on Snapchat at HDubbings with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there and all ads get a personal message from me. But before we leave you today, today's episode is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud scale monitoring and analytics platform. Datadog brings you visibility into every part of your infrastructure, plus APM for monitoring your application's performance, dashboarding, collaboration tools, and alerts let you develop your own workflow for observability and incident response. Datadog integrates seamlessly with all your apps and systems from Amazon Web Services to Docker to VMware, so you can get full stack visibility in minutes. Simply head over to datadog.com forward slash Sasta to learn more, and if you start a free trial, they'll even send you a free t-shirt. And thanks to my friends at WePay, now a Chase company, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Team Sideline, the complete sports league management solution. And the mobile-first platform offers a ton of features that users love, from registrations to roster building to facility reservations to volunteer background checks. Said one user, nobody has the level of service and features available for less than twice the price. And you can learn more at teamsideline.com. And to learn how you can better cover your bases with integrated payments, like Team Sideline did, visit wepay.com forward slash SASTA. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. As I said, wepay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, we so appreciate all your support and I look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.